Let's go this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to speak a little bit provocatively, perhaps, um, around this title, Why Bother with Church? Why, why should we bother with church? And here's the, here's the big idea that we started off with last week. Let me start my timer. The, the rest was freebie, right? Will you give that to me as a freebie? This was the big idea we started off with last week, and we're going to continue this week, and it'll actually be kind of a, a theme throughout our series. Here it is, being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. Can you say that with me? Being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. So here's the big question, the beach or church? Where where do you go? I mean, you drive, maybe you drive past somewhere like the beach this morning on your way to church and you look out and it's not so sunny today, but usually the waves look beautiful, the sun is out, there's a bunch of tanned people running around on the beach and it looks amazing. It certainly looks like a lot less effort than church, right? At the beach, no one comes up to you to put you on a roster. You never even heard of Charmaine, right? No one does that. No one comes to you and say, hey, would you, would you mind arriving early and putting the sand out? It's there. You just show up. It looks like a lot less effort. It looks fun. You choose what you want to do. You choose when you want to do it. You choose if you want to go at all. You choose how long you stay. And if the, if the gets irritating, you just leave. It's a bit more difficult in church. You feel like surfing? Come try it. You want to keep to yourself and just read a book? Sure. You don't want to come next week? Fine. No one's going to call you. No one's going to care if you come to the beach or not. You just come whenever you want. Easy come, easy go. Make friends, don't make friends. Maybe the beach is not your thing. Maybe that's not a great example for you, but many of us have a beach equivalent, right? A hobby in our lives. Cycling church. Maybe it's bed. Extra sleep, church. Maybe it's holiday home, weekends away, even family time comes into this. So so let's be honest, church is an effort. It's sometimes, maybe I should even say often hard. It's not an easy place. There, There are so many reasons, not even ones that I'm mentioning, why you might be tempted to not bother at all. Why bother making it a priority in your life week after week? Why bother inconveniencing yourself to get stuck in in some way or another? Why? After all, the beach is right there. My holiday home is right there. The cycling trails are are right there. The running trails are calling my name. Here's my point. It's going to be costly. It's going to be costly to be meaningfully involved in committed community. I think one of the most helpful metaphors we could use is the metaphor of marriage, and I'm going to be using that throughout this, the sermon this morning. I think it's, it's hard to be meaningfully part of a committed marriage. It's easy to be married. It's easy to say, I'm a member, I'm a Baptist, I'm a charismatic. That's easy. It's hard to be a meaningful part of committed community, just like it is with marriage. So my point is it's going to be costly, and so we need to answer, why is it so important And does Scripture really teach it? Does Scripture really teach it? Because if you, like me, and I'm sure you are, time is an incredibly valuable asset to you. Incredibly valuable. So as a Christ follower, if we commit to this week after week, it's more than just 
a Sunday, right? Meaningfully involved is, is hectic. We'd better be convinced from Scripture that this is God's desire for us if we're going to give our time to it. We better be convinced that He is saying through Scripture, I want you to shift your heart towards this thing I call church. We better be convinced that he's saying, I want you to take your hurts and I know they're real and I know that some leader had an affair with someone else or this happened or I know you were hurt. I want you to take your hurts and I want you to move them to the side. I think he wants to take our, our cynicism and he's saying through scripture, I want to take your laziness. I want to take whatever it is. I want you to be meaningfully involved in committed community. Can I have an amen just for my encouragement? See, if Scripture doesn't teach this, then by all means, let's knock ourselves out and do whatever we want. Honestly, if Scripture doesn't teach this, then what are we doing gathering on some blue Smurf chairs, sitting in a cold hall, listening to one another? What are we doing? But if Scripture does teach it, are we prepared to obey are we prepared to obey? Because I, I know we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, look, I'm not really willing to obey. But if we are not willing to obey, then we, we must stop calling ourselves Christ followers. Right? We, we must. And I know that's very, that's very hard, but I, I want to I I encourage you to use a more honest term. Something like a Christ sometimes follower. Or a Christ cherry-picking follower. Or a Christ admirer. Because Guys, let's be honest. Authenticity is a big word nowadays, right? Well, can I, but, but we use it so selectively. We're authentic when we want to be authentic, and we're not authentic when we don't. So I'm actually calling you to authenticity. I'm saying if we're going to follow the Scripture, if we're going to follow God, then let's do it and call ourselves Christ followers. But if we're really not that interested, and we're just happy with God having saved us, and we've got our ticket to heaven, and that's awesome, then let's call ourselves something that better reflects that. Are you with me? All right, so why is it so important? What does Scripture teach? I'm going to just give you three things. The first one is this, and it's, it's a different angle than what I was speaking around last week about the bride of Christ, but Christ is committed to his church. This is the first reason why you and I get to look at the church and say, this is vital, this is important, this is why we want to bother, this is why we want to give our lives. There's an author called Sam Alberry, he's writes some incredible books. One of them is called Is God Anti-Gay? It's one of the most helpful books you can get your hands on. It's about 100 pages long. It's brilliant. Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Alberry. But he writes another book. He writes for the Gospel Coalition, the Ravi Zacharias Ministry, and this is what he says in this book. He says, if you want to understand how committed Jesus is to the church, here's your answer. He doesn't just create it and let it be. He marries it. He's not just our almighty king, he is our perfect husband. That's how much concern he has for every member of his church. That's how much he cares about local church. That's how committed he is to us forever. He marries us. He marries us. Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. You know the ups, you know the downs, you know the offenses, you know the joys, you know the sadness, you know the heartache. He marries us. See, sometimes we, we say, or as Toza says, often we Christians sing lies. We sing it and we say, Lord, I want to be just like you. Please make me more like you. Any, anyone honest enough to say, I've prayed that? My hand's up. I, I've prayed that. Lord, I want to be more like you. 
I want to be more like you. But you know, you know what? I know what you're thinking in that moment because I know what I'm thinking on that moment. What, what aspect of Christ am I actually asking to have more of? What part of him do I want more of? I'll tell you what, what I think you're thinking because I'm thinking this. When I say, Lord, I want to be more like you, I'm thinking about miracles and power. Lord, it would be awesome if I could just like go to a lunch and like take the bread and multiply it. I want to be more like you, God. Or we think about leadership and people following us. Isn't it so cool like people were following Jesus? Wouldn't it be amazing if people were following me? Make me more like you, Jesus. Or maybe we want to be a, a righteous rebel and we see Christ sticking, his, sticking it to the religious powers of his day and tuning the Pharisees and we think that we're like the gatekeeper to the church and we're going to be the guy who's going to stand up and tune this church and tune this church and, and we want to be that kind of Jesus. See, I think we seldom, when we say that, Jesus, I want to be more like you, I think we seldom think biblically about how would, how would Christ actually answer that prayer. Jesus, I want to be more like you. And he says, great, I'm going to take you seriously. I'm going to take you seriously. You want to be more like me? Here's, here's some of the things I want you to do. This is like me. Son and daughter, I'm deeply committed to my church. I'm so committed to my church that I put a ring on it. That's how committed I am. I'm so committed actually that I died for her. I suffered. Do you want some of that? I'm going to make you like me by putting you on the same journey of commitment to my people. And all of a sudden, we're backpedaling. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, Lord. No, no, that's, that's not what I meant, God. I was talking about the miracles and stuff. And No, no, no. Jesus says, come on. Come on. I want to I see you commit to her for the long haul. I know she wakes up in the morning without makeup on. I know she's got that habit that irritates you. Right? I mean, this, this is what the book of Hosea is all about. And this is literally, you go and read the book of Hosea or Hosea, however you say it, and you go and read it, and it's about this prophet, and God tells him to marry this adulterous woman as a sign to Israel of what she's like to God. And so this woman keeps on running off, and this is Hosea's language, whoring with other men, and God keeps on telling him to go and get his wife back. And he goes and fetches her and brings her back. And then she runs off with another dude. And he goes and fetches her and brings her back again. And again and again. He even names his children after this nonsense that's going on. And God says, that's me for my church. That's the story in a nutshell of Hosea. That's me for my church. I'm committed. I'm married. When she runs off after other men, I fetch her. I bring her home. I have children with her and I give them a name. That's me for my church. And he's, he's saying, Jesus, I want to be just like you, really? I want you to commit to her for the long haul. I think he's saying, I want you to guts it out when you are offended and every fiber in your being wants to leave. Who's been there? I've been there. It's, it hurts. It's so much easier just to walk out the door Walk, I mean, you don't even have to walk far, right? There's about 15 million churches just on this one block. Just find another school, right? Some, have, some schools have two in them. It's the most tempting thing to just go and start over. And then I think about my marriage commitment, and I think about how God says I'm married to my church. That's my commitment. I don't get to start over. I'm not talking about moving churches. You get what I'm, I'm trying to say, but 
We don't leave an offense and then sit in our armchair at home and say, well, that's it, I'm done with church. I gave it a chance, it messed up. One strike and you're out. I think Jesus says to us, I want you to contribute to her in every way you can. You want to be like me? This is what I did. I, I gave everything, my life for this church. I want you to put in love. I want you to put in care for one another. I want you to give each other time. I want to see you having coffees with one another, opening your home to one another. But, but my home is my castle. Yes, I know. That's why you've got to open it so that other people can come and enjoy your castle. I, I, want to, I, want to, I want you to give her attention. I want you to give her benefit of the doubt. What a beautiful thing benefit of the doubt is. Just giving one another the grace of the benefit of the doubt. Hey, you said that. I, I'm just going to trust that you meant this. Effort, finance, kind words. Are we contributing, 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 contributing? But Lord, you say, sometimes she's not lovely. Lord, sometimes she spends money on things that I disagree with, God. I want to take your credit card and cut it up, Lord. She's mine. I want you to contribute. I want you to keep giving, loving, caring. I want you to extend grace to her when you see some not-so-cool stuff. When you see someone do this or that, or this leader does that or that, I want you to stick it out year after year with her, even when you're tempted to trade her in for a younger, sexier model. Hey, husbands, wives, students wanting to get married, isn't this the kind of guy you want to give your daughter to? Isn't this Jesus, the kind of guy, his commitment, the person you want to give your daughter to? Isn't this the person you're looking to marry? See, being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. Does this sound like meaningfully part of? Does this sound like committed community? It does to me. Why is it so important? What does Scripture teach? This one will be a bit quicker. Number two, Scripture teaches that God exists in Trinitarian community. This is not some 21st century idea that some pastor cooked up and wrote a book about 10 points to having healthy community. I'm sure there is a book like that. But this is birthed in the heart of who God is. We are called to community because God exists in community. Guys, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Being, here's, here's another way of saying it, right? Let's think this through practically. I'm a practical person. Being welcomed into relationship with God simultaneously means being welcomed into relationship with brothers and sisters. Say that again. Being welcomed into relationship with God means simultaneously being, as we looked at last week out of Ephesians, being welcomed into one body, one church, one baptism, one spirit. You are now part of a universal group of Christ followers. And guys, here's the crazy part. You cannot be adopted by the Father without also taking on adopted brothers and sisters. You can't do it. Either you're adopted by the father into a family, which is his family, and the other kids that he adopted are there with you. You can't do it otherwise, right? 
See, like them or not, like them or not, think they're terrible or not, you can't have one without the other. This is the, the scriptural metaphors about the church. It speaks about a family. It speaks about a household. Come to me afterwards if you want to study this a little bit, and I'll give you a bunch of references. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Ephesians 2, 18, and 20. These, 1 Peter 4, 16, 17. This all speaks about a family, a household that you are part of. You weren't part of it, but now you are. You see, you can't have one without the other. Then God speaks about us being a temple. We are his holy temple. I want you just to think about the magnificence of that metaphor for a moment. Think about how precious to the Old Testament people the temple of God was. The place where God himself came and dwelled among them. The place where God gives detailed instructions about how he wants everything to look and feel. Now he says, scrap that, that beautiful thing, it was incredible. They've been chasing it for the whole of the Old Testament. Here's my new living temple. You! Peter says we're, we're living stones. Now let me ask you, how much of a living temple or a living house, how much are you just a brick out in the wilderness on your own? How do you fulfill that scriptural metaphor and hold an idea of individualized Christianity? You can't. It doesn't stack up to reason. Then last week we spoke about this a little bit more, but he spoke about, he uses the metaphor of his bride. Ephesians 5, 23, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. These biblical metaphors are difficult to escape. You can't, you can't escape them. To refuse community, listen carefully to this, to refuse community is to set ourselves above God. It's to say, God, community is good for you. God, I'm glad that you're busy rescuing a people. I'm glad that you operate Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father, that you operate in community. But God, as for me and my house, as much as I'm happy to let you function in community, God, we, we're okay on our own. That church is just way too irritating, way too difficult, or whatever it may be. When we willfully reject community. I'm not talk, talking about when you got placed in Pofada and there's no church for 100,000 kilometers and you're out there on your own serving Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about choosing to not get meaningfully involved in community. We are telling God, God, I know better than you what's good for my life. And then we need to be very, very careful because that reminds us of someone else in the scripture who began to tell God, that he was more important, his ways were more important. Can, can you see that not, can you see that you cannot not be part of this community? Can you see that to ongoingly refuse it goes against the very plans and purposes of God throughout history? That's going to be point three we're going to speak about. Can you see that it's God's idea of what is good for us? This is not some terrible burden that we have to carry. Oh no, I've got to go and see those people again. I can't stand Neil. I mean, if Neil has ever offended you, uh, I have no idea. You must be very sensitive. I want to speak for a moment to some of you who have experienced at the hands of the church, as tragic as that, as, as that is, there's people who say to me, Paul, or maybe you're thinking this in your mind, I can see that 
God has a people. I can see that church is scriptural, but this thing has really hurt me. The experience that I've had is that this is not for my good. You keep on saying like it's God's idea and it's for our good, but honestly, I don't know whether this is good for me and my family to be here. And I know that the experience that you've had is incredibly real, but I want to encourage you this morning that you're not seeing the whole picture. You're not seeing the whole picture. Scripture always trumps experience. We never interpret Scripture through our experience and put our, our experience higher than or above Scripture. And so there's this, there's this beautiful line in the Marigold, I think it's the Marigold Hotel, and the guy says, if everything's not right, it's not the end yet. So, oh no, it goes like this. So I stuffed up my punchline. It goes like this. It goes, in the end, everything is right. And if everything's not right, it's not the end yet. And it's a little, did I say that right to Marigold Hotel fans? And it's a, little bit, it's a little bit like that with this issue. You might have very real pain, and I don't want to negate that, and I don't want to pretend it's not there, and I don't want to just say, come in and smile and fake it and be happy. It's okay, you can come with your pain. But I'm telling you now that God says this is good for you. And if God says this is good for you, it's good for you. And if it doesn't look like it's good for you yet, you just haven't got to the end. And you can pray and ask God in his grace to begin to zoom out for you, that you can start to see more pixels in the picture. Let's speak about the third thing. The third reason why it's so important, why you don't want to go to the beach. The third reason why you want to bother with church, why you don't want to worry about rosters and you still want to come and you, you still want to be part of this life-giving community is that God himself has revealed it as his plan through the ages. That's what I was saying to you right up front. It's not, a, it's not a 21st century idea. No, God has forever been intent on gathering his people. So we're going to look at this from a, from a slightly different angle. And I'm actually going to play you a little piece of Tim Keller's, one of Tim Keller's sermons that I heard that was just so powerful. In fact, I'm actually going to ask our news, our news guys, our media guys, to send out this clip. So if you don't get the newsletter... There's so much good stuff going out on there. There was a brilliant sermon on there this week. I'm not even talking about, I'm not at all talking about mine. There was another one at the bottom of that newsletter. Sign up. Just, Charles, get your hand up over there for me at the back by the video. Or speak to me or Charmaine over there, just for guys who don't know you. Why don't you just stand up, Char? Give us a wave. Where's your sunglasses and your hat? Um, these are guys who are on staff with us, and you can go and find them after the meeting and just say, hey, I would love to get the newsletter. I'm going to send out this Tim Keller sermon this week. It's, it's powerful around unity within the body. Anyway, he bases it out of Luke chapter 6, and it was such a surprise for me because I've heard plenty around the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the beautiful Sermon on the Mount, but it was, he's, he's contending that the actual context of this is community, that it's God rebuilding community. So let's read it together, finally. We get to scripture for those of you who are very worried. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. I'm reading in the ESV. It speaks about Jesus and it says, In these days he went out on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, etc., etc., right? Go down to verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. 
and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So here's the common, here's the things I need you to see in that scripture, right? There's Jesus, there's a mountain. There's Jesus going up on the mountain to pray, and then he comes down from the mountain, and he is 12 people. What's with the 12? We're going to talk about that in a moment. He, he calls these 12 apostles. And so up on the mountain, there's, there's the mountain, there's Jesus, there's God, there's these 12 people, and, Je- and God is speaking to Jesus, and then Jesus comes down from the mountain, and then there's this gathered crowd at the bottom of the mountain. There's all these people. And then Jesus begins to speak to these people, and as he speaks to them, there's power. Right? Are you following that? Does this ring any bells at all? Because this passage is not actually just a passage in isolation. It's actually something that we've seen already happen. If you go all the way back into Exodus 19, there's a Jesus type. His name is Moses. He's a Jesus type. He's a forebearer to Jesus. He's up what? A mountain. Who's he with? He's with God. So we have the mountain. We have God. We have Moses talking to God, praying to God. And who's waiting at the bottom? The 12 tribes, which is why Jesus called 12 disciples, right? He didn't have like that many followers yet. They didn't need 12 leaders. And yet Jesus calls 12 disciples as a symbolic sign of, of the tribes of Israel. At the bottom of the mountain, as Moses comes down Mount Sinai and comes to bring the word of God down the mountain, are the 12 tribes waiting. And then there's a display of power. The mountain shakes. It trembles. There's, there's smoke but the people are terrified. They're terrified. And God has to make all these laws of keeping them off the mountain because otherwise he's going to kill them. Let's listen to what, where Killer picks up and what he has to say around some of this. Thanks, uh, media guys. Thanks, Devs. The question is, uh, what does that mean? And the answer is, go back. When, when was the last time that happened? At Mount Sinai, God called together the 12 tribes and sent Moses down off the mountain with his word. What was the purpose of the law of God coming off of Mount Sinai? What was the purpose of it? Popular uh, understanding of the word of God is, or of the law of God, most people, I think, think that the reason we have the law of God is it's a way for us to find out how to find God and be saved. You obey the law of God to be forgiven or be saved or get to heaven or get eternal life and so on. But when you read the book of Exodus, narratively, that's impossible because God gives them the, does not give them the law, then save them from slavery. He saves them from slavery, then gives them the law. And therefore, the law of God is never, in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, the way you get forgiven or the way you're saved. So why did God, if he'd already saved them from slavery, why did he give them the law? And the answer is because what he says in the book of Exodus is, I'm going to make you into a people. I'm going to make you into a true human community, a new human community. God says, as it were, in the book of Exodus, he says, the reason why human community has unraveled everywhere, the reason why individuals are war with individuals and families that were with families and nations that were with nations, the reason all that's happening is because when your relationship with me unraveled, all other relationships unravel. And when a relationship with me is restored, that restores all other human relationships. 
And therefore, I am creating a community in which we show the world that if you restore relationship with me, all of the f- unraveling is woven again together into a fabric. I'm going to show that when you relate to me that you're brought into a new human community. And what it means, therefore, when Jesus comes down with his 12 and he begins to give the Sermon on the Mount, this is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a shorter version here in Luke 6. The longer one is in Matthew 5 to 7. He has not simply given us a manual of ethical, individual ethical prescriptions, even though, I mean, as an individual, you do learn a great deal about how to live from the Sermon on the Mount. What he's actually here to say is, I'm here to do the next stage in the creation of a true community. This stage, notice in verse 17, includes Jews and Gentiles. It's across the races. You not only have people from Judea and Jerusalem, but also Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus says this is the next stage in God's reconstitution of the human race. I am present with power to create a new counterculture, a new society, a new human community. All, you know, think of threads. You know, a thread is so fragile. It's gone. Our human lives are as fragile as threads, but if you take thousands of threads and you really interweave them, so that, the, so that they are deeply interdependent. They become a piece of fabric that is enormously strong and very often beautiful. And God says, when you relate to me, Jesus says, when you enter into a relationship with me, I will weave you in to a human community deeper and more beautiful than you can imagine. And that is really the first point. <laughs> the first point is that to be saved by Jesus means not just to have your individual sins forgiven, it does mean that, but it means more. It means to be woven in to a new human cre- a community, a true human community that God is creating. Or think about your self-image. You know, a lot of people in, your, in this culture say this, your self-esteem and your self-image should not have much to do with what other people think of you. That shouldn't matter. Don't base your self-image on what other people think of you. You decide what is right or wrong for you, and you live up to that. So it shouldn't matter what anybody else thinks. You create your own self-image. You create your own self-esteem. Go ahead, try it. Just try it. Everybody else in the world thinks I'm stupid, but I think I'm smart, and therefore I feel smart. You won't be able to do it. You can't get a sense of self outside of community. You can't get a sense of, you can't get an aesthetic experience outside of community. You you need community. You want it. It's It's one of the deepest needs of your heart. And yet, we live in a world that is it doesn't seem to be able to produce it. If you're a leader in any way at all, if you're the head of a department or an institution, or if you're in any kind of capacity in which you're considered a leader, most of what is called leadership is really, 90% of what you're doing is trying to keep all the human relationships from blowing apart, all the relationships of the individuals who are underneath you. If you're ever in leadership, you realize that people are always getting slighted, always getting upset, always getting offended, always falling out with each other all the time. There's something in the water. There's something in the air. There's a force field in the world that seems to make community impossible, and yet it's the deepest need of your heart. What hope is there for us? And Jesus shows up and says, power is coming from me to create a true community. I'm your only hope. I'm your only hope. So the first thing he shows up with is a promise of true community. Now, I don't know where else you're going to look. Isn't that so powerful? Within each of our hearts, this 
cry for community and yet at the same time a recognition that it's so difficult and that Jesus in the parable Sermon on the Mount is saying, I'm your only hope. I'm your only hope. So we see it all the way back in Exodus. Just think about what we've been studying for the last few months in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? What's the, what's the constant washing in, washing out of the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah? Hope, 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 anticlimax. God's calling his people right there in, in, in Jeremiah, where you remember, right where we started at the beginning, right in Jeremiah, these people are going into exile because they disobeyed God again and again and, and hankering after other gods. And right there, chapter 30, 31, 32, 33, he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back, you know, my people. You're going to come with weeping and with joy and with singing. It's magnificent. But this, this, is, the, this is the story of trying to live in, in, in Christian community. It's hope, 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 anticlimax. And these people are trying to come back to God again and again, these Israelites. Why? When, when we finish off the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to do one last preach on the book of Nehemiah, which is like the crowning preach. And I'm going to give you my big theme for that day in a few weeks' time. Everything in the book of Nehemiah is showing that we can't do it on our own. It's pointing forward to Jesus. And then we come into the Sermon on the Mount, and that Jesus has come. That Christ is, is here. We see so powerfully in the Sermon on, on the Mount that it's always been God's plan. This is what Jesus is, is saying. He's saying, my message is so closely related to the Old Testament message. It's a, it's a reaffirmation of it, that God is gathering a people, but now I'm bringing you incredible news. It's called the gospel. It's called good news. And he says, I'm not just bringing a people, I'm coming to make it possible. Mustn't that, if, you, if you're hearing that with Ezra and Nehemiah and the human effort and trying to build community and it never working and we keep going back into our sin and we build this temple but that's not enough and then we, we try and do this and that's not enough and then we, we beat people on the head and that's not enough and then Jesus must come and bring the most beautiful relief when he says it was all pointing to me. Now it's enough. Now it's enough. I'm coming to make it possible. You, you tried and you tried, but it just kept falling flat. You see, the, the Old Testament law demonstrates our need for salvation. If you had to sum it up, the Old Testament law demonstrates our need for salvation. The New Testament brings us the salvation in Jesus Christ. It says, here's the fulfillment. Here's what you've been waiting for. Here's the Savior. So the Old Testament speaks of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and it speaks of terror, and it speaks of fear, and it speaks of judgment and smoke and fire, and it speaks of judgment and curses. That's the Old Covenant. And then Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins this, this new wave. The New Testament speaks of Mount Zion. No longer Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion. And he, he speaks about grace and salvation and healing and peace and blessing instead of curses. I'm your only hope. Isn't it beautiful? When you look at Scripture and you look at it and you, and you kind of pull it out and you look at the whole of Scripture and what God is doing, it's incredible. This is, this is so important. If you've zoned out for a moment, please zone back in. I can see some of your faces, hey. Over here. If you zoned out for a moment, zone back in for this, okay? As God makes a way for vertical relationship to be restored, 
horizontal relationships begin to be restored in our lives. I want you to think about that. It's like an atomic bomb that goes off. As our, as our vertical relationship with God is restored, there's this ripple effect from our lives. There's this atomic bomb effect that goes out from our lives. When we come to know Jesus, our marriages should get a million times better. Do you know that? Some of the wives in the room, in your hearts, just crying out, Lord, please. Because let's be honest, most often it's the guys. Most often it's us in the marriages. Not always, I'm just throwing it out there. I wonder if so many of us are lousy at commitment in every area of our lives. We lousy husbands as well. Just putting it out there. Just a gentle thought for a Sunday morning. <laughs> See, but as man, as man is restored to God, so God wants to restore sideways these, these relationships. And this has always been God's plan. This is my point three, right? This has always been the plan. It's not a new plan. It's always been God's plan. God's plan is to restore community. That's always been. He's taking a, a people. And this is being practiced now. It's beautiful. If you think about it, right around the world, right across South Africa today, there are millions of churches practicing this today. Gathering together. Busy practicing what it feels like to be part of God's community around the globe. But we're in the already not yet. The bride is going to be beautiful. She's going to be spotless. She's going to be unbelievable. No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to have cancer. No one's going to die. No one's going to say something stupid. No leaders are going to offend you. No person's going to bite you. No one's going to steal from you. But we aren't there yet. We're in the already not yet. So we've got the power of Christ and we're being redeemed, but we're still in the dress rehearsal. We're in the dress rehearsal for that great and glorious final day when we'll enter eternity and we'll stand with the redeemed, every tribe, every tongue, every nation under heaven, every racial segregation blown away, and we will stand and worship our God. Can you see that's the picture that God's been going at from Genesis? I will be their God. They will be my people. I will come and dwell with them. And we're in the turbulence in the middle. We're in the turbulence. You feel it in your marriage? I do. You feel it in, in the way that you parent your children or the way that you relate to your parents? You feel it with your coworker, your boss, the people you employ? You feel it in your, in your friendships? So I said last week that if you don't like community, you're going to really struggle with heaven. It's what it is. Heaven is the community of God's people through the ages, worshiping Him together. There's no little corner of heaven with your armchair and your lovely hot, hot chocolate and a pen and a Bible just for you to have your time by yourself forever. It's not there. God knows, God is intent on a people. He knows nothing of privatized, individualistic relationships. It displeases him because it never has been, nor will it ever be his plan. His plan is us. I said to you that God has revealed his plan through the ages. Let me, let me just throw a few verses at you. And it's, it's like, I love them. They're like, the, they're like the bookends of scripture. Right there in Genesis 17. This is what it says. Genesis 17 verse 7. 
God speaking to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. What's the covenant that God's going to establish with Abraham, our father, as we come into faith, is our father. So this promise is for us. This is the promise to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be your God, you will be my people. Then it goes on and you look in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 16, and you can see that this promise, Paul says, is the promise for the church. It's for us today. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We spoke about that just now. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a promise for us today. And then you go right to the end and you look in Revelation and the other book ends. So it starts in Genesis chapter 17 and then you go to Revelation 21 verse 3 and it says, And I heard a, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't it incredible? It's the plan. It's always been the plan. It's never not been the plan. Man, I, I hope the penny is starting to drop about how God feels about his people. I hope the penny is starting to drop. Are you starting to see that it was God who set the church in motion? Who's the first church planter? Who is the first church planter? It's not Peter. It's Jesus. Jesus takes the 12 and he begins with his group of disciples to shape them and form them for the church that's coming. Jesus is the one who turns to Peter and says, on you I will build whose church? My church. Jesus is the church planter. And from then and forever, Jesus has been planting and planting and planting people in small groups together, local churches. It's, it's, this, it's this motion, this plan set in place by God. And then it's sustained by God for all the ages and he's going to marry her. It's incredible. Are, are you starting to wonder if you've treated her right? That's what springs up in my heart. I say, God, help me love your bride. I'm doing this wrong, God. There's people, I'm, I'm saying stupid things. I'm doing stupid things. Are you starting to, to wonder if you've given her a place in your heart that God has given her in his? This commitment, this Hosea kind of commitment to his people. Wow. We haven't even got to one hope. I'm not going to get there today, right? Don't worry. You know why we haven't got to One Hope? Because One Hope is a, is a tiny, minuscule, yes, beautiful, yes, important, but, but it's a tiny pixel on the screen of what God is doing throughout generations and generations and generations. I need us to catch in our hearts a picture of the universal church of God, of what God is doing through the ages, of how he's had this plan in play, and then we can talk about how we fit into his plan. It's beautiful being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea. It always has been God's idea of what is good for us. So I've got one minute and 40 seconds left on my clock. Let me tell you the last thing I want to say to you this morning is start where you are and with what you have. Start where you are and with what you have. This, this relationship, another way I could have said this point four is let love grow. 
Let love grow. I know some of you are struggling with love for the local church. That's okay. You're here. I'm preaching to the choir. Well done. Your love is evident. Your, your giving is evident. No, I'm not just talking finances. I'm talking time. I'm talking leaders who don't feel equipped to lead, standing up in their life groups and saying, you know what, there's no one else. I'm going to do this. And having people point fingers at them and saying, you're not the best leader I ever had. And they think, you know what, I know that, but I'm still going to do this. That's beautiful. Meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. Start where you are and with what you have. You know, when you start a relationship to get married, you don't get married. You start the relationship. It's not healthy to get married in two weeks. It means something happened. Right? It takes time. The relationship grows. You grow in love. And my experience of, of being part of the church of God, one of the blessings my parents gave me is that we just went to church every Sunday. We were there. Every life group we were there. Pre, prayer meeting was a joy. We just went. And just in going and just in committing and just in, in being there, half the thing is just showing up. God began to birth this love in my heart for the local church that won't, that won't sit down. I can't stop loving the local church. You can offend me. You can be mean to me. It doesn't matter. God has placed a love, a burning love inside of my heart for the local church. And I want to encourage you, just like a marriage, let it start. Let it grow. Let it mature. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be good times. There's going to be incredible moments of feeling like you're so locked in and part of a community who's supporting you through a difficult season. There's going to be parts of it where it feels like you've been mistreated and, and misunderstood and no one gets you in the community. This is the reality of, of life as we go towards that end day when it's going to be perfect. I want to tell you that if we do it God's way, every single one of us will look back and say, it was for my good. How many, how many married folk? Just put your hand up. Anyone who's married or been married? Put your hand up. All right, some, some of the younger students, these are guys you want to hang out with, right? These are guys you, you want to hang out with. I, I want to tell you, and you know this is true, that if you are building your marriage in the way according to the way that God has laid out, laying his life down is, is, is the metaphor from Hebrews of how Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. You know that at the end of the day, you're going to look back on that marriage and say, that was good for me. That was good for my children. That was good for my life. And I've gone longer than a minute and, and 40, but hey-ho. So I want, to, I want to give an encouragement to you that your love will grow. I want to encourage you, if you're just starting out, to start with what you have. You might feel that, that what you've got is not the greatest gift. Maybe you're insecure about your gifts. Maybe you feel less spiritually mature than everybody else around you. Maybe you don't know how to pray, so you're scared to come to prayer meeting. Just come. Just come with what you have. Put it on the table. People are going to get around you. They're going to love you. They're going to help you grow. You're scared of community. So are we all. Come to life group. You're going to grow. Come to a Bible study. Read your word. This is a great space to really simply, 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 simply. This is not a complicated message. This is the, this is the baseline of the message. Get into community. Start with church. Start with life group. Come along. Don't fool yourself that someday when you, you find another kind of community, then you're going to suddenly be meaningfully involved. The Bible says, how can you run with the horses in Jeremiah when you can't even walk with a footman? How's, going to, how's God going to use you for your powerful worldwide mission when you can't even be used in your local church? So here's the thing. Last week I said to you, the take home was this. 
I was calling on us to repent for our attitudes towards his bride. Were we like those guys at the bride who've said things about the bride and you're standing at the corner and you think they're going to say something nice and then you hear them say some terrible things and you leap in to defend her? That's how Christ thinks about his church. And I was calling us to repent. This week, I'm calling us to a, a renewed biblical commitment in our hearts to God's plans and God's purposes, saying, Lord, I see that you've put this plan in place and man, God, I'm not really on board with this and I want to commit in my heart afresh to putting my life into a place where I'm walking in community with one another. So the real question is not why bother with church. The real question at the end of the day is why in the world would you not bother with church? It's beautiful. Full of warts for now. That's why you're welcome. That's why I'm welcome. We're the ones with the warts. Let's pray together. Father, there's moments where it feels like we can't keep a a focused conversation going, especially with kids. We can't keep a focused conversation going for five minutes. Or we can't sustain an idea for a year or two. And yet, Lord, when we look at your word and we see how you've sustained a plan from generation to generation for thousands and thousands of years, you've been leading a people with a clear plan in mind, not shifting and, and, and changing like shadows like we do on our business plan or our conversations or whatever it may be. God, we marvel at you. We marvel at your ability to do this, Lord, to put a plan in place and to use willing men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit to put feet to this plan throughout the centuries. God, this morning we stand on the shoulders of the giants of the men and women who have gone before us. I think of that song being throned upon the praises of a thousand generations. You are worthy, Lord of all. Father, there's hurts in the room, real hurts. There's reluctance in the room. There's selfishness in our hearts that want to do our thing on our agendas, on our time. And there's another million emotions in between all of those things. I want to ask you, because this is for the good of your people, would you bring a fresh commitment into our hearts this morning toward your bride? Would you bring a a fresh practical commitment in our hearts toward one another? Adopted by the Father, We love that part of you, God. Thank you. Adopted with other brothers and sisters. Teach us what that looks like. We want to walk more meaningfully in that. Teach us to disciple one another. We ask all these things in the wonderful, precious, powerful, life-changing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.